Good morning. Welcome again. We go back to 2 Samuel this morning. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. One of the most, I think, one of the most colorful stories in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiho went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless us now as we receive your holy word so that it might go deep down into our hearts and bear great and beautiful fruit, the fruit of sincerity and joy 
and obedience before you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a great summary of what today's text wants to show us about God. Even though we live in a society that tends to view God more as a cuddly hamster than as a fearsome lion. No matter your emotional or psychological state this morning, no matter what's happening in your life, what's going wrong in it, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how chaotic our world is, the most important thing for you today is this. Who is God? What is he like? We're back in 2 Samuel. After decades of exile and civil war, God's chosen king, David, has finally ascended to the throne of a united Israel. A couple weeks ago, when we left off from 2 Samuel, we heard about uh, all these wonderful victories that David had in his military exploits. He had defeated the Philistines twice and had conquered the city of Jerusalem and then adopted it as his home and as his capital. The Lord has given David a series of great victories. And so he now wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem so that God's presence might be at the very heart of his kingdom. Uh, You might remember that the Ark is a special gold-plated box, a special box where God had promised Israel that he would be present in a special way. God had spoken to Moses from on top of this box, and it contained the stone tablets upon which God himself had written the Ten Commandments. Once a year, Israel's high priest would go into a little square room containing this box, and he would pray for the people of Israel as he sprinkled sacrificial blood in order to cleanse the people of Israel from all the ways that they had unintentionally sinned against God that year. At the beginning of the Samuel narrative, about 50 years before what we read about today, Israel brought this box out into battle as a good luck charm. But they suffered a disastrous defeat and saw the ark captured by the Philistines. The Philistines quickly sent the box back, but since then it's been collecting dust. And so now we hear about David bringing it back to where it belongs, the very center of Israel's life. And as the text describes this for us, it invites us to see three things about God. First, isn't God great? Second, isn't God gracious? And third, isn't God good? First, it wants us to see and to feel the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Look at verses 2 to 4 there. Uh, We hear about David's plan to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And as we hear about it, over and over and over again, the passage is emphasizing and repeating God's name. It's emphasizing his character and his nature. That with this special box... God is uniquely present on earth. You can see that most of all in verse 2. They're going to be bringing up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. 
Uh, those are two golden angels atop the box. It's not just that God is there. It's that God is enthroned on top of it. He is Yahweh of hosts. That's a word that means armies. God is the king ruling in the midst of his heavenly battalions. But in verse 3, we hear that they are carrying this special box on a new cart. Uh, Now, this is supposed to raise some alarm bells for us if we've been paying really close attention to the story of Samuel. First of all, because this is not the first time that we've heard about the ark being put on a cart. Last time, decades before, the Philistines had placed this ark on a cart when they sent it back in horror to Israel. And so Israel is dealing with the ark of God's presence in a Philistine kind of way. It should raise a couple of red flags for us when we see it popping up again here. But the main reason that this is such a problem is because God had already commanded Israel through Moses about how exactly they were supposed to be handling and dealing with this box. Not only was it never to be seen, it was always hidden or always covered except for one day a year when only one man, the high priest, got to stand before it. And not only was this box never to be touched, but the box was also never ever allowed to be moved except by means of very specific men carrying it in a very specific way, only with long poles through hoops that were on its sides. So there are some real problems here in this story. They are transporting the cart, the ark in a Philistine kind of way. They're depending on animals to carry it rather than on priestly men to carry it as God had commanded. And so we should be thinking, whoa, something's going wrong here. We should be wondering what's going to happen next because God takes his own holiness so very seriously. But David and the massive crowd are celebrating. It's like a huge parade or a music festival. It lists out all these instruments that everybody's playing. These people are right to be excited about God's presence returning to them under the leadership of his anointed king. Their hearts are in the right place. They have wonderful motives. But good intentions and emotional excitement only get you so far. They're not nothing, but they're not everything. The oxen carrying this cart stumble somehow. The ark lurches to the side, and this poor guy Uzzah grabs hold of the ark to keep it from falling to the ground. He, too, means really well. I mean, imagine the horror of what would happen if this box fell over and the Ten Commandments themselves fell into the mud. But listen to verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And so you can imagine all the dancing and all the music slowly dying out until there's nothing but stunned silence. It's something like how the entire stadium responded this week when the NFL player collapsed right in the middle of the first quarter. People horrified by what they'd just seen. Except in this case, there's no CPR, there's no ambulance, there's no resuscitation. Uzzah is dead. At every moment, each one of us is living and breathing by the merciful sustenance of God. God is the ruler over all of his creation. 
including the exact length of our lives and the exact moment and manner of our deaths. Because God is the king, he is utterly serious about his holiness, uh, his otherness. And so God is utterly serious about obeying his commands and about heeding his many warnings about violating his holiness. It's good for God to be like this. He would be evil if he were not. And so as his creatures, one of the most basic points of the Bible from beginning to end, as his creatures, humans must know and learn and live in light of the truth that we are not God. We have to learn our limits. We are never free to come up with our own ideas about how to approach God or how to honor him no matter how much sense it makes to us, no matter how sincere our intentions, no matter how good it feels. The ultimate question is not how do I feel, but who is God? Not what do I think, but what does God say? This is shocking and offensive in our world. But you can also see here that it was shocking in Israel's world too. In verse 8, you see that King David himself is angry with God. He says, how could you do this? I thought I was doing all of this for you. This was all for you. We're bringing your presence here. We're so excited to have you here with us. But in the midst of his anger against the Lord, verse 9 tells us that David comes to fear the Lord which in the Bible is always a good thing. David was celebrating before the Lord. That's good. But he was not sober about the Lord. In his goodness, God cannot and will not let us forget that he is glorious and great. As much as we might want to domesticate him into Fluffy the Kitten, something that's small and manageable and entertaining, Something that's there to make us feel good and feel needed. As God's king, David needs to see and to relearn the greatness of God. But what's so wonderful about this story is that we also see David relearning the grace of God. God is great, but he's also gracious. And so David, he's frustrated. He's fearful. He does not know, understandably, he does not know what to do with the ark now. And so we read that he literally steers it aside, kind of like you might steer a toddler, you know, having a fit aside. He steers it aside to somebody else's house. But you hear in verse 11 that God immediately begins blessing that guy and his whole family and all his stuff just because the ark happens to be sitting in the middle of his house. And so when David hears this, it clicks for him. God's holiness does not mean that he wants to stay away from his people. It does not mean that God wants to harm his people. David sees instead that this great God actually wants to be present among his people in order to bless them. God has graciously provided a way for sinful and yet repentantly sober humans to live in his presence. And that's exactly what the ark and its bloody rituals have always been about. And so verse 12, David tries again. He went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
So you can see here that it's not that you have to choose between celebration and sobriety. What you are seeing is that true, lasting celebration in God's presence comes through sobriety. David's renewed sense of reverence for the Lord is now shown by his obedience to the Lord. In verse 13, the ark is now being carried by people, not animals, just like God had commanded. And there's now also animal sacrifice, and a lot of it, showing that David and Israel understand that they don't deserve to be in God's presence, no matter how good their intentions or how much fun they're having. And so every six steps on the way up the hill, David leads the sacrifice of an ox and a fattened cow. They are embracing the gracious gift of God. His willingness to accept animal death instead of human death so that they can come into his presence. And of course, this is all a foreshadow of Jesus himself, his own sacrifice, not of animals, not of other people, but of himself. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament are not about humans finding a way to God, but rather about God graciously giving humans a way to come to him so they might be prepared for when he gives his own son as a way for them to come to him. And so here the people are gladly offering up their very best to the Lord. We hear about lots of cows being killed and we think, well, that's kind of strange. But we need to understand that this is the most valuable resource these people had. This was their very life. This was their greatest form of wealth. They're gladly offering it to the Lord. They're showing that as the gracious giver of life, God deserves everything we have. And that we only live because of his generous mercy. Obedience and sacrifice are probably not the first two words you would think of when you think about how to find real happiness. But here you see that David and the people are truly enjoying God's presence. They have found real happiness. They're back to celebration now with something like a giant tailgate party. In verse 14, you get this wonderful image of David just having the time of his life before the Lord. It says he danced before the Lord with all of his might. Uh, that's a, a nice phrase. The word means something like twirling. David's just twirling about, leaping around, dancing before God. He's wearing this simple linen robe that would normally be worn by the priests. And there's a, a few special times in Israel's history where the king himself would officiate like a kind of priest alongside the regular priests. And so in verse 17, you hear that once the ark arrives, David is offering more sacrifices. He's offering up the burnt offerings, which are a certain kind of sacrifice that symbolizes total dedication to the Lord, but that he's also offering what are called the peace offerings, another kind of sacrifice that symbolizes friendship with God and friendship with his people. The point is that God graciously provides his people with a way to find real eternal joy in his presence. And that he does it by giving them a priest king who leads them in worship and sacrifice. David, of course, is pointing forward to Jesus, the great and the final priest king who came from the joy of God's presence in order to lead us back into the joy of God's presence. And so the text invites us, isn't God great? Isn't God gracious? And finally, isn't God good? Isn't God good? In verse 18, you hear that after David finishes offering all these sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord, 
He distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And so you saw the chapter starting with this emphasis on God's glorious name. And now you see David giving the people God's blessing in that name. As if he were God himself. We were made to live under God's king so that we could enjoy God's blessing. God wants to do what's good for us. He wants to give us what's good. You see that in how David is doling out all kinds of rich food for everybody. He's like the guy behind the counter at the barbecue place. He's slicing up the brisket, everybody one by one. You want lean or moist? And of course, everybody wants moist because who wants lean? David's giving it to everybody. But then you get this other little phrase here. It says that David is also handing out raisin cakes. Uh, Most of you probably don't know what that means. In the ancient world, raisin cakes uh, had a lot to do with fertility. They thought they were an aphrodisiac. Uh, If you don't believe me, look up in the Bible the other couple of places where raisin cakes show up. And so what you're getting here, especially as we hear about each one going back to their house after this big party, is a big wink, wink, wink. (laughs) God wants to give us what's good. He wants to bless his people. How good he is. The goodness of our great and our gracious God should cause us to rejoice like David did. But not everybody was celebrating. The story began with a warning about celebration without sobriety, but it ends with a warning about sobriety without celebration. David, the dancing king, has been blessing all of the households of Israel. And then in verse 20, he heads back to bless his own house, We've already heard in verse 16 that his wife, Michael, who in this chapter is always referred to not as the wife of David, but as the daughter of Saul. We read that she was looking down on the parade from her window filled with disdain for David because of how exuberantly he's leaping and twirling about, making a fool of himself, she thinks. So now when David pulls into his driveway, she storms out the front door. She sarcastically sneers at him how the king of Israel has honored himself today. She's been watching him dance around in his robe. She says, you've just been exposing yourself to the local girls like a trashy frat boy. She expected David to be so much more dignified, so much more impressive, not just to look like a king, but to act like a king. Joyfully celebrating God, joyfully celebrating his goodness, joyfully living in light of it, it's going to look pretty ridiculous to a lot of people. There is a great danger in our world of the church emphasizing celebration at the expense of sobriety. So many American churches are filled with flippancy and shallowness, built around entertainment and emotions. That is a real danger. But particularly in our own tradition, there's also a danger of forgetting that sobriety is really a means to celebration. Are we joyful when we worship the Lord? Are we joyful throughout the week as we're living lives of total worship before God? Do our words and our thoughts and our emotions and even our bodies, do they show that we're joyful? 
For some of us, holding up a hand, maybe even just opening your mouth to sing, those things might as well be twirling around in your underwear. And so some of us need to be reminded that worship should be joyful, that it should be visibly joyful. Would a random visitor to our church or a random guest at your house, would they look at you, would they listen to you, and would they walk away thinking that you have something to be glad about? David says, I am more than happy to look foolish to you. I am more than happy to look ridiculous to people like you. Verse 21, he says, I was not celebrating for other people to see me. He says, I was doing this for the Lord. I was doing it in God's presence. He says, I will continue to celebrate before him. He says, I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be lowly in your eyes. It's not that we should look silly for the sake of looking silly or for the sake of being authentic or something like that. But rather what's going on is that in a world that's filled with people who are avoiding God or escaping from God, those who see and enjoy his worship, those who gladly embrace his commands, those who gladly sacrifice their best for him, they're going to look ridiculous and extreme and stupid and fanatical. What matters most, though, is that we're in God's presence, that we're enjoying his goodness and his grace. And so just like the people of Israel did, we find and we enjoy God's goodness most of all, through his anointed king, through Jesus. Jesus was the lowly king, so ridiculous and offensive in the eyes of the world's experts that they crucified him. And yet he was so committed to God that he offered up the great and the final sacrifice of himself so that he could lead his people into the blessing of God's presence in this wonderful victory parade of his resurrection so that with him, we too could enjoy God in all of his greatness, all of his grace, and all of his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you remain great and gracious. You did not have to graciously provide a way for us to come back to you, but you did. And so we rejoice. And as we enjoy your grace, Lord, help us to never forget how great you are. And as we see those two things about you together, help us never to forget how good you are. May we as a church, may we as individuals and families throughout the week, may our lives in the midst of great sorrow that's real and painful, may we nevertheless be marked by an even deeper joy. For we live before you and we worship before you. In Jesus' name, amen.